Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I invite you to get your copy of God's Word out this morning and join me in Genesis chapter 19. Going to finish up the chapter here with a little section, kind of the epilogue to uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. A uh, very sad, troubling, uh, heavy text, but uh, stick in, stick with me here. So let's look at Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. Genesis 19, 30 through 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So I'm actually eager to spend some time in this text, and not because this is a fun text or anything, this is the content of this text is terrible. Just by a blank, just a straight up reading of it, this is a tragic and sickening text to get through. This is part of our conviction to preach expositionally, though I would never, I, I, talk, I spoke with a friend yesterday on the phone, and he asked what I was preaching on uh, this morning, and uh, he was, I did, well, did not know how I uh, decided to come to this text and preach on Well, I didn't decide to, to pick this text up. It's just the next text in the book of Genesis. And so here we are um, looking at this difficult text, and there's a real yuck factor that exists here, and that's good. I mean, it's good to have a yuck factor here. This is kind of a gross, this is not kind of, this is a gross thing that happens. And that, that's, it's okay that God has wired us with certain things that we see and we think, yuck, that's not right. That's actually a good response. But something really important happens in a text like this. Something really important can happen to us when we force ourselves to take a text like this and really deal with what's there. This text is combat against our bleached out, sugar-coated, coffee cup Christianity. This this idea that God exists for my ease and my worldly happiness. And I I pick this book up when I want to find a little text that makes me 
feel better about whatever or makes me bubbly or, or somehow gives some trite, uh, complacent, like just euphemism for how to feel better about life. This is not a text that does that <laughs> at all. But I think what it does is something far deeper and far more meaningful, meaningful if we will sit with it and really try to figure out what in the world is going on here. 2 Timothy 3.16, we all know John 3.16, right? That's famous. So a good way to remember another very important text is 2 Timothy 3.16. So John 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Theonoustos. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, that the man of God may be fully equipped, ready for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God, including this text. And so it's one we should sit with and try to work on this text. It is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. So the first thing we notice when we come to a text like this, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that was last week. You probably know that story if you weren't here last week. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction because of its wickedness. God's judgment rains down upon Sodom. They are wiped out. They are gone. But what we find is that the destruction of Sodom didn't remove all the evil from the world. Sadly, like you would think with this giant like a, a, a display of the wrath and judgment of God coming down upon this wicked city that, remember Abraham intercedes, if he can go find ten, wicked, ten righteous people, surely you won't destroy the city. And evidently, right, we're there, the angels show up, there aren't ten righteous people, God destroys the city. Judgment comes down upon Sodom. And yet... Evil and wickedness is not yet removed from the earth. Look at the next text. It's still, the world is still all messed up. Why? Because more than just the world is evil and wicked and broken. More than just the world is broken, God's image bearers are also broken. The reason why wickedness and evil and sin still persist on this broken world it's because we're all still in it. <laughs> Lot and his daughters survived. And that's why sinfulness and wickedness are still existing on the earth. We are sinful and broken. So while we heard the, remember the, in the intercession of Abraham, the, the three figures are there and they're talking about what God is going to do to Sodom. And, and Abraham's question is, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the, the rhetorical answer, the obvious answer there is, yes, God will do what is right. However, just because the judge of the earth will do what is right, it does not mean everything on the earth is right. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. That does not mean everything on earth is right. The Bible is unflinching in its report of human sinfulness. It's one of the things I appreciate about, about if you actually sit down and read Scripture and let it speak, it does not try to hide the fact how broken this world is, how real human sinfulness it is. It is one of the sad comforts of the Bible. There's a, 
there's a, there's a sense of like a wounded solidarity that you have when you read scripture. If you've suffered through anything, if you're going through something, if there's a tragedy in your life, if your past has got some checkered history to it, if there's some sin that has been committed against you, or maybe you've committed great sin, or there's just all, or you've had incredible tragedies in your life, you don't come to the Bible and find some rosy picture that doesn't confess that that's real. <laughs> that really does happen, and the Bible doesn't pretend like it doesn't. It, it puts it right out on display. Yes, here's how broken and sinful and wicked the world is. And all at the same time, holding up for us, God yet still is working His purposes in the midst of all of the sinfulness and brokenness of this world. God, the Bible faces sin, it admits it, it confronts it, and in the midst of it, it continues to unfold for us the perfect plan of God. We are not the first to realize the sorrows and brokenness of this world. If you're, in, if you're in Genesis, flip back with me to Genesis 9 at the end of the flood narrative. There's an interesting similarity here in, in this text. There's Genesis, we're only 20 chapters in, but we've seen this is now the fourth instance of some type of judgment coming down upon the world. We have Cain who murders his brother, right? And he is judged. And the outcry, there's a lot of similarities. The outcry of Abel's blood raises up to God and, and Cain is banished and he's sent out, right? He's given a mark, he'll be protected, but he, he is banished and he, is, he builds this city. And so Cain, there's the judgment that comes against Cain. There's the judgment of the flood, which is this text here. And there's the judgment of Babel, where the men begin to think, they, the people begin to think, let's build a, 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 a tower and we will become like God or make our name great and they rebel against God and his greatness and God has to come down in judgment and confuse their language right in Genesis 11 I believe is where the tower of Babel is at there make sure if I got that right yeah I did there you go look at me uh, so but the flood narrative Right, we, we're familiar with the flood narrative. It is another instance of God's judgment coming down. God judges the world by putting to death all the inhabitants of the world. They, their, their rebellion, their wickedness, it says that God's heart is grieved by their wickedness. And so he wipes out all of the inhabitants of the world, save Noah and his family. They build the ark, right? Noah builds the ark, and they ride out on top of the floodwaters, and they alone are saved. And you think... Finally, all right, now we're ready for the story to get great, right? We had creation, everything was good, and then the fall happens, and Adam and Eve rebel against God, and sin enters the world, and death enters the world, and things begin to fall apart. But then Genesis 6, God's going to make it all, He's going to wipe out all this wickedness, finally. And so we think the flood is, God is ruling justly, and wipes the world out of sinfulness. And yet, what we find at the end of the narrative of Genesis 9 is that just because God did what was right in judging the earth, not all is right yet. So we have uh, Genesis chapter 9. Look at verse 20 with me. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tents. Hear anything familiar there? And Ham... Or Ham, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And so there's this sad event after this great judgment of wiping out wickedness from the world, people are still there. And Noah gets drunk. And something very questionable happens. The text isn't explicit. Don't know exactly what's going on there. But Noah gets drunk and is lying around naked. There's also, it's, I don't want to go into it. It's, it's what's going on there. We don't really know. But something about they view their father's nakedness in either a mocking or an inappropriate way. Ham does. And so the other brothers have to come cover him up. So Noah, something really inappropriate happens. The judge of the earth may have done what is right, but all is not yet right with the world. All is not yet right. And so there's, there is a consistent theme here. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. There's a very blatant common condition in both of these stories. Noah gets drunk. Lot gets drunk and it produces chaos. It is this drunken condition. The Bible is not favorable when it comes to the condition of drunkenness. The people who, in Scripture, we read through the Bible, we look at Proverbs, look at all these different places, drunkenness is, is, is the picture of the buffoon. They're, they're the clown of the story, normally. Lot is the clown of the story. When you think about this instance of him getting uh, so inebriated that he doesn't even know what happens in his own cave in the middle of the night when he's there with his two daughters, that he's, he's a fool. He's a fool. And the Bible, we're only 20 chapters in, and twice in the start of Scripture, it has a very clear picture of those who pursue um, some sort of remedy at the bottom of a bottle are foolish. They are not going to find it. There is nothing glamorous here in this condition of life. Scripture throughout, while it doesn't condemn the drinking of alcohol, I mean, we have, I've got to say it to be honest with you. I mean, I could try to lie to you and say it hates all alcohol. It doesn't, but it does condemn and makes, makes very obvious um, remarks of how foolish of a pursuit this is. It does not glamorize drunkenness. And I know we live in an age that pretends like joy is found in these places. Movies and television tell us this is the way to pursue a good time. Our culture around us tells us this is the way to pursue a good time. But the Bible speaks of drunkenness as the way of fools. And Lot, he gives in to this escapism. Daughters bring him a bunch of wine. He drinks until he becomes so inebriated he has no idea what's going on in his own cave with his own body at all. And he wakes up and has no clue what has happened. This, this is the final act of Lot. His, his, to his shame, this is the path that his life takes. So Lot and his daughters, they've escaped Sodom, right? Because of the intercession of Abraham. They go to the city of Zoar, but they don't like it. They're kind of intimidated by it, so they escape to this cave. They have... No community. They're in isolation. They are alone, and this is not good. We know from the opening of Scripture, Adam is alone, and God, it's not good that man is alone. And so he gives him a wife, 
and there's community that begins to happen. Family begins to happen. It is not good to live in isolation and to live alone. So the girls, they hatch a plan. They desire progeny. Uh, they want children. This in and of itself is a good thing. We want the human race to be continued. It's actually one of the commands to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They have a good desire to have children, to have progeny. But left alone and to their own ideas, they hatch terrible methods to come to that desired end. They take counsel within themselves and they come to a really poor conclusion. Proverbs 11:14 tells us that in the abundance of counselors there is safety. In the lack of counselors there is danger. And they hatch this plan. Their situation could really have used an outside influence. Maybe go back to Zoar. See if there's a guy there that can help produce progeny. But no, they have this plan. So while they may have a noble end in mind, it does not justify the means that they use to get at this end. They get their father drunk. They do this on two consecutive nights. You know how this goes. The oldest daughter the first night, the youngest daughter the second night, and they both end up pregnant from these encounters. Just so we're clear, this is evil. This is sinful. This is wicked. Scripture tells us right here it is, but this is a incest. We have an our word for this. It's incest. And incest is not the will of God. Lest you think the Bible says it, so it must be good. No, the Bible is descriptive of many things that happen. It is not always prescriptive of what should happen. And so you can go to a place like Leviticus 18, part of the holiness code, which will talk about all these family relationships and how it's inappropriate for people of close family to have marital intimacy with one another. I mean, I just, I mean, I know it's an awkward thing to say, but it's like, you know, how often do we come to the end of Genesis 19 to say these sort of, that marital intimacy and close family is, in, is sinful. God condemns it. It's unlawful. It is unlawful. And so we, if you were nervous about in, in Genesis 19 earlier, we're talking about Sodom and how it condemns homosexuality. And sometimes we get, uh, Christianity gets, uh, like we, we are, uh, cherry-picking certain sexual sins we are against. Actually, what Christianity is about is fruitful, heterosexual, monogamous union within the context of marriage. And everything outside of that boundaries, yes, including homosexuality, but also including incest and families, uh, people, that is, that is condemned in Scripture. We are equal opportunity condemners of all sin outside of the marital union. And so this is... All sexual activity outside of the context of heterosexual marriage is sin. And yes, sexual activity with the close family members is sinful. This is not the will of God. This is a sad, hard thing that has happened in a broken, sinful world. And it's good to sit with the weight of that sometimes. The Bible is not going to tell you, hey, everything's going to be great it's, it's going to let the heaviness hit you. This is something terrible that has happened. I'm not sure we should be surprised that it, that it did happen. These girls were raised where? In Sodom. <laughs> so the idea that they were raised in a culture that was full of perversity, and then they go off into hide into a cave with their father, and they have some kind of perverse and sinful ideas, that's not really all that surprising. 
They've been raised in Sodom by what appears to be a fairly complacent father. And I don't mean to, to mock Lot too much, but fathers, mothers, lead your children better than this. If you are raising your children in a culture that is full of all sorts of perversity and sexual confusion, wake up, you are. If you didn't know that, you are. Don't be complacent about telling them what is sinful behavior, what is righteous behavior, what does righteousness look like. Do not fall asleep and, and, and teach them to hate sin and to love righteousness. And even more than that, I, know, I, I love being all about the kids, but let's be honest, hate it in yourself. <laughs> hate it in yourself. Don't just teach it to the kids, hate it in your own self. Do hate sin and love righteousness. Put to death by the Spirit the sin that dwells within us. And so this is a broken mess. Just a huge broken mess. And this sinful mess is going to produce ongoing consequences for the people of God. Remember, Abraham intercedes, Lot's rescued, sin is committed. And here at this last two verses here, we find that the, the progeny, the offspring from this sinful union, are the, is the father of the Moabites and the father of the Ammonites. And if you read on through your Bible, they're going to show up a bunch. Moabites and Ammonites oppressing the people of God. One of my favorite, it's a weird favorite story, but... Um, I guess you guys like Haman getting hung on a pole. So I like, I like this story in Judges. Uh, the judge's name is Ehud. And the, the people of God are oppressed by King Eglon of the, of the Moabites. And he's evidently a very large man. Very large man. And so Ehud is the... 18 years, the King Eglon gets the Amalekites and the Ammonites to join him. And they oppress God's people for 18 years. But Ehud is raised up by God and he makes a sword. He straps it to a cubit in length. And he straps it to his leg. He kind of hides it underneath his garment. And he goes in and requests private counsel with King Eglon, or Eglon, however you say his name. And they go in and he has private counsel with him. And he doesn't have a weapon. They didn't pat him down back then. And so he goes in and King Eglon, large, uh, overweight, uh, the Bible is, I'm just telling you, the Bible, copious rolls of weight upon King Eglon. Ehud gets in there and grabs this sword and shoves it into his stomach so deep that the hilt is covered up by the rolls of fat. His bowels are loosed. It's a great, it's a, it's a great story for kids. And, and, and they lock, the door is locked because they're in private counsel. Ehud escapes. And so when his people come along to check on King Eglon and they find the door locked, what do they think? They think he's in the bathroom relieving himself. And so they give him more time. And King Eglon dies, who is king of the Moabites. That's just one story. Just a, I never get to preach on that one either. So I wanted to mention that one. <laughs> but these people are going to oppress God's people. These nations that come out of this sinful union are going to oppress God's people in the future. The wickedness and sinfulness of man, meaning humanity, the wickedness and sinfulness of humanity produces all kinds of unwanted evils and consequences. You don't get to think, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to transgress God's law in this measure, but all the rest of it's going to be fine. We don't get to control over that. It produces all sorts of unintended consequences. That's why we are called to be killing sin at every turn. The wickedness and sinfulness of man produces all kinds of unwanted evil consequences. Now, is that all there is to say? 
listened to a few sermons, read some articles on this, and, and, and those are all really good applicable things. Uh, spurn drunkenness, don't be made a fool. Um, your sin will have unintended consequences going forward, uh, producing the, the Moabites and the Ammonites. That, those are all very good points, but is that all there is to say? And I don't think there is. Again, if you're in Genesis, turn with me, turn with me to the end of the book. We're going to jump way ahead. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Don't worry, we won't be here for a year or so. So you won't, you'll forget this by the time we get to Genesis 50, all right? So Genesis 50, I think this really serves as an interesting bookend for the whole book of Genesis. This comes in the life of Joseph, sold into slavery, and we'll, I don't want to spoil it. We'll get the story later. But Genesis 50, 20, Joseph is speaking to his brothers who have, done, who have transgressed greatly against him, basically murdered him for all practical purposes. But verse 20, Joseph says this. He says, as for you, speaking to those who committed evil against him, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And he says that earlier in Genesis 48 as well, that what Satan meant for evil, what you meant for evil, what the world meant for evil, God uses it for good for the working of his purposes. There's a category of understanding that we have to begin to build in our theology if we're going to understand how God works in a broken world. There's a category of theology we've got to figure out. This is the doctrine of the providence of God. Providence is not just a city in Rhode Island. Providence is a doctrine about the, the almighty sovereign power of God to orchestrate all things using various means for his ultimate good purpose. And he allows and permits all sorts of means that we don't understand, <laughs> that we would do something different, that we don't get it, that in his great grand providence, he uses all sorts of different means even at times taking sinful, wicked means and using them to accomplish his perfect, working through them, around them, with them, to accomplish his good, perfect purposes. The London Baptist Confession of Faith has a section here. We have a few of these out on our table as well. But talking about this idea of divine providence, it says this, God the good, this is chapter 5.1, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created. God governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchanging counsel of his own will for the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, boundless goodness, and mercy. God works all things by his benevolent care towards the end that he designs. And then point two is that although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, perfectly. All things come to pass just as he designed so that nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of his providence. Yet by his providence, he orders events to occur according to the nature of second causes, other means, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. 
God permits at times things we cannot get our minds around and yet is so sovereign and good, majestic and powerful and righteous that though he allows wickedness at times to be suffered, to be committed, he is not foiled in working his purposes. Now where do we see that in our text at Genesis 19? Where do we see that? This isn't always tied up very well, but I think in this case it really is. If you read on, you're reading through, you know, you read your Pentateuch, and you go, you read the book of Judges, right after the book of Judges in our arrangement, this book is actually after the book of Proverbs. It follows Proverbs 31 in a Hebrew Bible, but in our Bible it follows the book of Judges. And it's a story about a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi. And they have two sons, Malon and Kilion, and there's a famine in Bethlehem. And so they decide to escape the famine. We're going to move where? Moab. <laughs> the, the, the place where these people created out of this incestuous relationship, they're going to move to Moab. And while they're there, Malon and Kilion, they get married to a couple of ladies, Orpah and Ruth. Right? Ruth, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. And that's the title of the book in our, in our arrangement of Scripture is the book of Ruth. That they, they get married, but what happens while they're in Moab? Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, the, the, man, the father and the two sons, they die. And so Naomi is left with Orpah and Ruth. And she decides to go back to Bethlehem. And Orpah decides to stay with her pagan gods in, in, in Moab. But Ruth converts to Yahweh. She says to, she says to Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She converts to faith in the God of Israel. And they move back to Bethlehem and through a very, I mean, it's only four chapters. You can read it this afternoon. But through all sorts of circumstances, uh, Ruth meets a man named Boaz, who is their kinsman redeemer, saves them out of poverty and, 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 because they're worried about having any progeny in the line to be carried on, Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed. Obed fathers a man named Jesse. And Jesse fathers a man named David, who becomes King David, the, the greatest king in the history of Israel. And all of that is coming through who? A woman named Ruth, who is what? A Moabite. I don't know how, how in the world out of this incestuous relationship, because what's even crazier is you go to the book of Matthew, in the first chapter you have those genealogies, and no one wants to read those because they're boring. You know who's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus? Ruth the Moabite. In the midst of all of this wickedness, in the midst of what unflinchingly should be called a wicked moment in the history of the world, this is wrong. This is sinful. And yet, in the midst of that reality, not, not soft-selling the wickedness of this passage, God still accomplishes his purposes to bring about this seed that he promised in Genesis 3.15, right? Through Ruth, who was this Moabite. So you have to begin to formulate some kind of category for this truth about God. Because... It's the only thing that makes sense of the cross as well. Jesus is a perfectly righteous, holy man. He has committed no sin, did nothing but heal and preach righteousness, did nothing but uh, minister to the sick, raise people from the dead, give life to dead hearts. And what did the world do to this righteous man? They murder an innocent man. 
truly righteous, not just murdering uh, someone else who's an unrighteous person who's deserving of death. Ultimately, Jesus deserved life, and he got death. The greatest wickedness this world has ever known is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ the righteous. Nothing more wicked could be done than the murder of a righteous man. Truly righteous. Not good by our standards. Good by God's standards. Murdered. Nothing could be more wicked. And yet, through that wickedness, God brings about the purposes, his purposes, to save a people for himself. And in his providence, Acts chapter 2 tells us that according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God, they killed Jesus. That God ruled over this providentially to bring about the greatest good. So, what do we learn here? Just four things. What do we learn here? God is working on a larger scale than we can possibly imagine. One that, but it is not one that is beyond his ability to perfectly work his perfect purposes. Nothing can bind God's hand to work his good purposes. Secondly, we, we learn that we ought to be killing sin. Kill sin or it will be killing you. The sinfulness of man is real and it has great consequence and it ought to be killed at every turn. Is there blatant sin that you continue to entertain? Repent. It will not produce the joy that you desire. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, sure, but also pride, self-reliance, jealousy, anger, all of it put it to death. It does not produce the righteousness of God. Nothing can bind God's hand to work as good purposes. Absolutely. Be killing sin. Thirdly, there are no circumstances beyond the reach of his redemption. No matter the wickedness that has been conducted by you or suffered by you will be able to overrule God and his good purposes. What trials have you suffered from that seem like you can never recover from. I know enough of the stories around here. I know my own story well enough to know there are, there are things that we have all gone through, various things we've done that we are ashamed of, that we wish we hadn't done, various things that have been committed against us, losses that have happened, before we've, people that we loved and wanted to live life with and are now gone. Loss and wickedness and evil has been suffered by all of us. But there are no circumstances beyond the reach of his redemption. It is never too late for God to work. He will be glorified and can be glorified in your life and work it all for your ultimate good. And so that brings us lastly, will we trust him? There is no trusting of God in the narrative of Lot and his daughters. They, Lot does not trust God to take care of them whenever the angels are there, so he wants to give his daughters to the men of the, of the town instead of the angels. There's no trust in the daughters that God is going to bring about their good desire of children by good and righteous purposes. They take things in their own hand. There's no trusting of God in this narrative. Yet God proves himself over and over again to be trustworthy. He will work his good will for his people. At every turn, we ought to turn and trust him. It's okay to feel the heaviness of a passage like this. It's okay to hate the ugliness of this passage. But I think, the, I think it is a wonderful antidote to light and flippant faith. 
we deal with real problems. We deal with real sin. We're really broken. We deal with real grief. We deal with real hard things. And yet the scripture is telling us over and over again that in the midst of all the pain that we all suffer in this world, God is working his purposes, not to our understanding, but to his ultimate purpose for his own glory and the good of his people. Therefore, we ought to kill sin and trust him in it all. Let's pray. Father, give us, make us good ground in this place this morning. I pray, Father, that the truths of your word, God, I pray the truth of the gospel, that there is a Savior who will redeem all things, who will take the broken, sinful life and will forgive those sins, will make us clean and set us righteous with you, and will then, for those people, for those who are yours, will work your ultimate good purposes. God, we want this to be true. How great would it be if this were true? That even the sorrows that I suffer, even the sorrows that are suffered, the injustices that have been committed against those in this room, the places that we have sinned others, God, if that could all be forgiven, if that could all be redeemed somehow, if that could all be shown in the light of the final analysis to have been working towards, God, your glory and our good and ultimate joy in you, God, that would be so, that would be great. God, I want to rejoice this morning that that's exactly what Scripture tells us the truth is. And that which we most desire is what is given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and the redemption and reconciliation found in Him. May we cling to it in the midst of everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.